Creation, we all know that we all have sorrows in our lives. Children, even you have sorrows in your lives. We all shed tears. Children, even you shed tears. But today, the Word of God brings us to a very important question. And that is, do we have a godly sorrow in our lives? Do we shed godly tears, if you will, from our eyes? Paul, in our text, gives us a very clear distinction between two types of grief, two types of sorrow, two types of tears. On the one hand, there is a godly sorrow, godly tears. But on the other hand, there is a worldly sorrow. A worldly kind of tears. And Paul makes very clear that it makes all the difference in the world what kind of sorrow resides in our hearts. It makes all the difference in the world what kind of tears we shed. If we're shedding worldly tears then the end of that sorrow, Paul says, is death, if not repented from. But if we're shedding godly tears, godly sorrow, the end of that sorrow is salvation. That's what makes all the difference in the world, the kind of sorrow that lies in our hearts. Today, the title of our sermon is simply Godly Sorrow. Godly Sorrow. First, it's cause. It's cause. What causes godly sorrow? What provokes godly sorrow in our hearts? Second, it's direction. It's direction. On whom does godly sorrow focus its attention? On whom does godly sorrow focus its attention? And thirdly, its effect, its effect. What does godly sorrow do in our lives? What does it cause in our lives? And lastly, what are its marks? What are its marks? How can we know? What are the evidences that the sorrow in our heart is a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow? Godly sorrow, its cause its direction, its effect, and its marks. First then, the cause of godly sorrow. What causes godly sorrow? What provokes real godly sorrow in our hearts? Now to answer that question, we need to zoom out for a minute and get the big picture behind the book of 2 Corinthians. We've, we've jumped in here, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But we need to understand something of the context. We know from the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians, that 
There has been tension between Paul and the Corinthian church. Ongoing tension. Trouble. There were certain sins in the Corinthian church that shocked Paul. Rightly so. There were certain people that were stirring up trouble. Factions, divisions. And so there was this conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church. They were at odds. But here we find actually in 2 Corinthians that the Corinthian church, after all Paul's rebukes and the various things that had happened, had finally been filled with godly sorrow, real sorrow for over these sins. And they had repented as a church by and large. They had repented from their sins. And it's very clear from the whole book of 2 Corinthians, you can read it later, that one of the means that God saw fit to use to provoke that godly sorrow in the Corinthian church was a letter Paul had sent them. A sorrowful letter. A sharp letter that Paul had sent them. Now if you read the commentators on this, some think that this sharp letter was 1 Corinthians. We know 1 Corinthians, children, the, the book that comes before 2 Corinthians. Some people think that's the letter that caused godly sorrow. Others think it was a, a different letter that we don't have preserved in the canon. But, but regardless of which letter it was, we know it was a letter that led, that provoked godly sorrow in the Corinthians. And so it will be valuable for us to study something about what 2 Corinthians says about this letter to see what the Holy Spirit was pleased to use in that letter to provoke godly sorrow in the Corinthians. Let me give you a few things that become clear about this letter. First, and, and this is so simple, maybe we don't even need to hear this, but Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their sin. He rebuked them for their sin. Now, some of us here today struggle with being overly confrontational. We like to get in people's faces, tell them about their issues, tell them about their problems. Other people, others of us here today, have the opposite problem. We see sin in people, we see problems, but for whatever reason, we're not willing to point that sin out. Paul makes clear here that if we want to see godly sorrow in the lives of others, in the right time, in the right place, in the right manner, it's important that we are willing to rebuke them for their sin. If Paul had not rebuked the Corinthians, they would have carried on in their way. No sorrow, no repentance. But the first thing here is that Paul rebukes them for their sin. But then a second thing. Paul rebuked them with a genuine godly sorrow for their sin in his own heart. In his own heart. He was, he was mourning over their sin with a godly sorrow in his own heart. Now, here's the temptation for us often. It's to rebuke others with all sorts of sorrow in our hearts, but not a godly sorrow. We rebuke others with a, a harsh kind of sorrow. Or a bitter 
kind of sorrow. Or a self-centered kind of sorrow. But if we want to see godly sorrow in others, in our lives, for their sin, we need to rebuke them first with a godly sorrow for their sin, for what it's done and what it is in our own hearts. This is what Paul had. But then the third thing. When Paul gave that rebuke in his letter, his motivation was clearly that of love. Love for them. Listen to chapter 2, verse 4. I wrote unto you, Paul says, speaking of this previous letter, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love, the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Maybe some of us here today need to do a heart check. We need to do a heart check. Why are we rebuking others? Why are we calling them out for their sin? It's because we love them. Because we have a deep love for them and their well-being. Is that why? Or is it for some other reason? If you want to see godly sorrow in others' lives, you must do it because you love them. And then lastly, Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians was a rebuke that clearly was flowing from and pointing to the gospel. It was a rebuke that was flowing from and pointing to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was the atmosphere in which Paul lived. He breathed out and in the gospel. At all times. This is so obvious from reading all of his epistles. This was the motivating impulse. This was what he was pointing their eyes to in this rebuke for their sin. And if we think about our own lives, we need to be very, very careful, congregation, that the principle, the heart principle that lies in our own hearts when we're rebuking others, but really at all times, we need to be very careful that that principle is not, as our forefathers called it, a legal principle. A legal principle. But rather a gospel principle. If our lives are all about justice, what's right, what's wrong, who's to blame, what sin have you done that I can call you out on? If our lives have that legal principle, that tit-for-tat principle in them, we won't see godly sorrow in the lives of others around us, in our spouse, in our children, in our siblings, even in our parents' children. We cannot operate upon a legal principle if we expect to see godly sorrow in the lives of those around us. What does the Bible teach? Romans 2 verse 4. Know this verse. This is a very important verse. It is the goodness of God, also translated kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. 
The law will bring guilt. Oh, yes. People will wallow in guilt, but it doesn't lead repentance. It doesn't lead to repentance. Four factors. Then in Paul's life, that the Holy Spirit was pleased to use to bring godly sorrow into the lives of others. Paul rebuked them for their sin. He did so with a genuine sorrow over their sin. He did so with a real love for them. And he did so motivated by a gospel principle of forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. That's the cause, at least in this epistle of godly sorrow. But then a second point this morning. What is the direction of godly sorrow? What is the direction of godly sorrow? Now, what do I mean by direction? What do I mean by direction? Well, if you read those three verses, verses 9 through 11, our text for this morning, you'll see that three times Paul uses a phrase which includes in it this word godly. You can see it if you look at your Bibles. Godly. Now, this is a, a good translation, this word godly, but it's, it's worth noting that that word godly is actually a translation of two different words. It's a translation of, of a Greek preposition that typically has to do with direction or sphere. It's pointing somewhere. And the word God. So we could actually translate this word godly when taken with sorrow as, as sorrow towards God. Sorrow pointing towards God. Sorrow in reference to God. Sorrow in relation to God. Sorrow existing within the sphere of God. That's what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow is sorrow that is directed primarily towards God. So the primary reference point of godly sorrow is not ourselves. Primary reference point of godly sorrow is not even primarily other people, although it does include them. But God becomes that primary reference when we're speaking of godly sorrow. If you want to picture it, you can picture it like this. Godly sorrow is like somebody who finally stops only looking at himself in the mirror, finally stops looking only at other people, and finally has his eyes directed up to God. Finally begins to mourn over sin in relation primarily to God. This, this person realizes that he has offended others and he mourns over that. But he realizes above all that he has offended the Lord, his maker, the one who has given him life and breath and every good thing. The one who is both just but also merciful beyond measure. And he begins to be filled with a sorrow because of his offense towards God. So someone who is filled with godly sorrow isn't just dealing with interpersonal grief with others. There's someone who gets down on their knees beside their bed and begins to mourn over their sin towards God. They weep, perhaps with real tears, perhaps in their heart, over their sins because of God. Think about the Philippian jailer for just a minute. We know the story well. 
Acts chapter 16. The Philippian jailer had treated Paul and Silas with great cruelty. He had offended them. He really had done a lot of hard things to them. But what was the question that he asked them? When when he falls down before them, was it, "How how can I make things right with you? Well, that came later, didn't it? But what was the question on his lips? We we should know this. Children, do you know this? What was the question the Philippian jailer asked? He said, what must I do to be saved? You see that? His eyes are looking towards God. He realizes that, that the primary person he has offended is God. He has sinned against God and now he needs to know, how can I be reconciled to God? He's grieving over his sin against God. Now, why is this? Why is it that the primary reference point, the main person we grieve over is God? Why? It's because of this. That we, if we have godly sorrow, we love God even more than we love others. We love God even more than we love others. If we love someone very much, and I trust we do, then even the smallest offense that we do against them grieves our hearts. And so it is with God. If we love God above all, as we ought, then the primary sorrow, the primary grief that will fill our hearts will be grief towards God. We will say with David in Psalm 51, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. We will become like those people of Nineveh. Children, you remember the story of Jonah? Finally, he obeys God, and he goes to the city, and he preaches repentance or judgment. And what do they do? The king leads the way. They dress themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They fast, they mourn. They cry out to God. The text says they cry mightily unto God. Because he might forgive them for their sins. You see, they weren't just dealing with Jonah. Yes, he had rebuked them. But they knew who they had really sinned against. The main person. It was God. So this is the direction of godly sorrow. It mourns because it has offended God. But then a third point. What is the effect of this godly sorrow? What is the effect of godly sorrow? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. We might say this is where, to use an expression we often use, where the rubber meets the road. This is where things really begin to be real in our lives. Because if we're truly sorry towards God, then we won't just feel sorry. But our feelings of sorrow will issue forth into repentance. 
Thomas Brooks, Puritan, said this, Repentance is a continual spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. Repentance is a continual spring. Or Ambrose, an early church father, said true repentance is to cease from sin. And this is exactly what we see in our text. Godly sorrow works repentance. Godly sorrow works repentance. And that word works there has the simple idea of doing something. Of of doing something in our lives. You think about physics for a second. Some, Some of you know physics. You're studying physics or you've studied physics. One simple definition of of work is a force causing the movement or displacement of an object. A force causing the movement or displacement of an object. And so it is with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a force that causes movement or displacement or change in our lives. It affects, it works repentance. And children, you know this, don't you? But what happens if, you're, if you say you're sorry for something to your parents, for instance, but you aren't really sorry? Well, what, what happens? You, you don't really change, do you? You might say you're sorry, but you then continue to do the same thing. But what happens if you're really sorry? Oh, you're sorry you hurt your parents. You're sorry you disobeyed them. You wish you hadn't. What happens? You start to change. Not perfectly. But your godly sorrow works repentance. It works change in your life. You work towards not disobeying your parents. You try hard not to disobey them because you're really sorry for your sin. It's the same way for all of us, not just children. It's the same in relationship with our spouses, with our kids with our coworkers, fellow students, any relationship we have in our lives. Godly sorrow works repentance. And it is true in, in, you might say, the largest way in relation to God. Godly sorrow works repentance in regards to God. Look at how verse 10 finishes. Please, please have your Bibles open if you have them with you. Look at how verse 10 finishes. Godly sorrow works repentance where? To salvation. Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. In other words, there is, because of the grace of God, an inevitable result of godly sorrow. And that is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The preposition Paul uses here, that word too, if you're looking at it in your Bibles, you see the word too. Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. That word, that that preposition too, is actually a, a preposition that has a primary reference to something going into something else. Somebody walking into a house, somebody getting into a car, somebody entering into a country. And so we could, we could translate that this way. Godly sorrow works repentance into salvation. Godly sorrow works repentance into salvation. 
In other words, there's a God-ordained cause and effect relationship between true repentance and receiving salvation in Jesus Christ, entering into Jesus Christ by faith. Why? Why? Well, we need to understand what true repentance is. True repentance, as many theologians and pastors have described it, is effectively a U-turn in your life. It's a U-turn in your life. Children, if your parents are driving somewhere, you're in the back seat, and all of a sudden they realize they took the wrong turn. Now they're going the wrong direction. Now, if they carry on in that wrong direction, will they get to their destination? What do you think? No, they won't. They won't. What do they have to do? They have to do a U-turn. They have to turn around and go back in the opposite way from which they were going. And this is exactly the same way it is with us. By nature, we are on the pathway of sin and rebellion towards hell, towards the eternal judgment of God. And everywhere on this, this road of life, if you will, there are warning signs on our, on our left-hand side, on our right-hand side. Saying, go no further. Danger. Warning. There's a cliff ahead. There's destruction ahead. Turn around. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn around. Do a U-turn. Repent. What does this look like in our lives? It looks like this, to use the example I've been giving. It looks like putting the brakes on our lives full of sin, putting the brakes on chasing after worldliness, putting the brakes on ignoring the Bible, putting the brakes on ignoring the clear promises of God, putting the brakes on anything that would keep us from doing a U-turn and following after God. And then doing that U-turn and seeking after God, running on the road to heaven, if you will, driving on the paths of righteousness. And what's the heart of the U-turn? What, what's, what's the very heart of that turn towards roads of righteousness? It's exactly what we've been speaking of. Godly sorrow over sin, repentance towards God, and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the U-turn. Getting on our knees, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the U-turn. That is what sets us on the path of righteousness towards God. And when we do this U-turn, when we turn around like that, then Scripture teaches that we are justified because of the work of Jesus Christ. We are received with open arms, like the prodigal son who did that U-turn in his life. We're received with open arms to the Father, and we're eternally safe in Him. Remarkable. The free grace of God welcoming sinners who do U-turns whenever they do them. 
That is repentance. Turning away from sin and towards righteousness through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now I know, I know from talking with many people that there's a practical question here that I need to deal with. It seems to come up a lot for many people. The question is this. Why does my repentance look and feel so different from other people's repentances? Why, why do I not feel the depth that they feel? I, I mourn over my sin, but I don't feel it like they feel it. Why? Well, let me give you a few reasons. The first one is, is, is somewhat obvious if we stop to think for a minute. And it is that God and His sovereign will has created every single person different. Some of us are very emotional. We'll weep at different things that other people wouldn't. Other people are not so emotional. They're more calm. And by virtue, simply of the way God has created us, we feel things differently. We, we feel repentance differently. That's the first thing. But then secondly, consider this. Many people, some people anyways, are driving a lot faster on that road towards hell than other people. And when God convicts them of their sins and He stops them in their paths and they do that U-turn, they feel it much more strongly. They've had to break a lot faster. They've had to turn around. And then some people have been going on that road for so long that they have a long way to go on that road of righteousness. Many sins to repent of. Many hurts that they've caused in people's lives. So they feel it differently than someone who has perhaps lived a, righteous, a life not so full of outward sins. But we need to realize in all this that at the same time, few people feel it differently. They have different things that they experience, and yet repentance is repentance. A U-turn is a U-turn. Whether everyone looks at you and thinks, well, they're a nice person. They admire you, maybe. But on the inside, you're proud and you're rebellious towards God. You need to repent. Or if, if everyone looks at you and says, well, there's the rebellious kid. There's the backsliding man. There's the backsliding woman. And everyone knows. You need to repent too. We all need to repent. We all have sins that we need to do a U-turn towards and walk on the road of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. So let me ask you the question today. Which path are you driving on? Which direction are you going in life? Are you driving on in the paths of sin, knowing well enough that hell is what waits? That's foolish. The Bible calls that foolishness over and over and over again. That is pure folly. Or have you done that U-turn by the grace of God and said, what a fool I am to live in sin. I must seek salvation in Jesus Christ and drive on that road of righteousness. Never perfect way. But which road are you on? Which direction are you going? Never rest content until you are driving on the road of regular faith 
and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me also add one thing to this. Many Christians, many Christians do go through times of backsliding and sin, even after real godly sorrow and repentance for sin. John Calvin says it this way. He says, a sincere repentance from the heart does not guarantee that we shall not wander from the straight path and sometimes become bewildered. And the question we need to ask is this. What should I do? What should I do if I am in this place of backsliding? What should I do if, if I've practically done a U-turn to my U-turn? And I'm, I'm now walking in the paths of sin again. What should I do? Should, should, I, should I lie there in, in the mire of sin and just wallow in despair? What should I do? Can, can, am I allowed to repent if I've backslid seven times? Let's say you've, you've backslid into this sin seven times and then you've repented, but now you're sliding again. What about 70 times seven? What should, should I just give up? Is that the right approach? No. No. You must repent. You are permitted to repent. You are even commanded to repent. You are invited to repent because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how David, the, the, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, listen to his life after a time of backsliding. He says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. You see, it is because of the unchanging character of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that God will always receive backsliding sinners back to himself. He cannot but receive them for the sake of Jesus Christ. A just man, Proverbs 24, verse 16, a just man falls seven times and rises up again. May that be you also here today if you are in a place of backsliding. But this brings us now to our last point this morning. And that is a very important point and a point that many people wrestle with. And we find it in verse 11 of our text. And again, I ask that you follow along as we look at these. Verse 11, the marks, the marks of godly sorrow. How do I know? How do I know that what lives in my heart is godly sorrow? Sorrow that ultimately leads to salvation. How do I know? Listen to these marks Paul gives. Listen to these marks Paul gives of true godly sorrow over sin. First in verse 11. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. There you have it. 
This is a, this is a godly sorrow. What carefulness it wrought or worked in you. What carefulness it worked in you. In other words, true repentance doesn't work a carelessness in our souls in regards to sin. It doesn't make us, as Calvin writes in his commentary, it doesn't make us drowsy or sleepy towards sin. It works a certain diligence in our souls in regards to sin. What carefulness it wrought in you. Second, yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. You see, true repentance doesn't say, I don't care what God thinks about my sin. That is not true repentance. True repentance clears itself before God. It says, I care what God thinks about my sin. And so I'm going to tell God how much I hate my sin and how much I long to be holy as He is holy. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Thirdly, yea, what indignation. What indignation. Children, what's indignation? Do you know that word? Indignation has the idea of a righteous anger. Not a sinful anger, but a righteous anger. And here, likely, Paul is saying what righteous anger true repentance has against sin. You see, someone who has that principle of true repentance in their heart is not friends with sin. He doesn't walk hand in hand with sin. He sees sin in his own life, and yes, he sees lots of sin in his own life. But he's angry at it. He's indignant at his sin. He wants it gone. Fourth, yea, what fear? Yea, what fear? True repentance has a genuine fear of the righteous wrath of God. It doesn't laugh at God. I don't know about you, but I've seen people laugh at God in the middle of their sin. That is a fearful thing. True repentance doesn't do that. True repentance has a fear concerning the righteous wrath of God. It doesn't waltz around in sin. It says with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. What fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Fifthly, what vehement desire. What a, what a strong desire true repentance has to be done with sin and to be reconciled with God and one day to live with God forever. What vehement desire. The true repentance has to be done with sin, to be reconciled with God, and to live one day with God forever. And then lastly, these two. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. What zealousness true repentance has against sin in our lives. What revenge true repentance takes against sin in our lives. The big picture is very clear. Very clear. No, no Christian is perfect in his repentance. We understand that. Think about the Corinthian church. They were not a, a perfect church. But Paul saw the principle of repentance in them. Or think about David. David was a man after God's own heart. 
And he truly repented, and yet he still struggled with sin. Think about your life. Think about my life. True repentance is not perfect in the sense that it deals with all sin fully. That comes in glory. And yet the big picture is this. That godly sorrow is 180 degrees opposite to worldly sorrow. It's a completely different thing than worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow doesn't really care about sin. It doesn't really weep because it loves God. It doesn't weep because it has offended God. Worldly sorrow is all about me. All about me. Other people have offended me. Other people have hurt me. My needs, my desires. Someone has gotten in the way of those and I weep over that. It's all about me. But godly sorrow, true repentance, is all about God. And it has these signposts. It's not careless in regard to sin. It cares what God thinks about sin. It hates sin. It fears God's punishment against sin. And it has a desire, a zeal, a vigor in the fight against sin. That's godly sorrow. And someone who doesn't have that, someone who's spiritually dead, doesn't know about these things. They don't have these signposts of godly sorrow in their hearts. This morning, I want to close our time together with a longer quotation from a book that I highly recommend to you. It's Thomas Watson's book on repentance. He said these words, and and with this I close. He said, let it not be said that repentance is difficult. Things that are excellent deserve labor. Will a man not dig for gold in the ore? even though it makes him sweat? It is better to go with difficulty to heaven than with ease to hell. What would the damned give so that they might have a herald sent to them from God to proclaim mercy upon their repentance? What volleys of sighs and groans would they send up to heaven? What floods of tears would their eyes pour out? But it is now too late. They may keep their tears to lament their folly sooner than to procure pity. Oh, that we would therefore, while we are on this side of the grave, make our peace with God. Tomorrow may be our dying day. Let this be our repenting day. Did you hear that, congregation? Tomorrow may be our dying day. Let this be our repenting day. Amen. Let's pray.